All right. So look at Galatians. Today I want to, as we continue our journey through looking at the different doctrines, uh, consider the various persons of the Trinity, Trinity itself. Last week we looked at the doctrine of creation. This week we come to a doctrine that is always very much on our hearts and minds, very much close to us, very much something that we consider, and it is, like the others, of vital importance. It is the doctrine of salvation. The nature of the gospel is fundamental to who we are. It's, a fundamental, it's fundamental to our relationship with God. It's fundamental to our understanding of God and of ourselves. And it is perhaps one of the doctrines, one of the core doctrines, where you find Christians most at odds with each other. Just in terms of the finer points. In terms of exactly how it plays out. And I don't mean to suggest today that I have a corner on the truth, or Baptists have a corner on the truth, or anything like that. But I do believe that there is a biblical description, understanding, perspective of salvation. And that there have been some, even in Baptist churches, who have wandered from that at from time to time. And I believe it is important that we understand the seriousness of this issue. And I think there is no other passage that characterizes, demonstrates, expresses that seriousness more clearly than the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with uh, a group of churches in the area of Galatia. Galatia was not a city. It was an area of Asia Minor, northern Turkey, uh, from about the middle to the eastern portion of modern-day Turkey. Uh, in the north, that's Galatia. And uh, so Paul is writing to numerous churches, but apparently among all of those churches, among all of those groups, different cities, different villages, different areas that he had ministered to, served in, preached at, there was a consistent error growing throughout that whole region. And the error had to do with the nature of salvation. And the reason for the error seems to be that there was a group who are known as Judaizers who were coming through Galatia and they were trying to in their minds, correct the theology of salvation. And they were trying to tell these new Christian churches, these new Christian believers, that if you authentically wanted to be a Christian, you had to follow the laws of the Old Testament. And we're not just talking about love the Lord your God and don't kill and don't commit adultery, those sorts of things. We're talking about the, the cleanliness laws. We're talking about the food laws. We're talking about the, the customs and so forth that were dedicated, centered on the culture of Israel. They were saying they go beyond the culture of Israel. They go to the nature of one's relationship with God. And they had convinced many that they were right. And so Paul writes this letter to try and set things straight, to try and correct this 
perception. And, and, and what's notable, I think, about this letter is, while there's some disagreement on this, I believe that Galatians is Paul's first letter that we have in Scripture. He may have written some before or so forth, but the ones of the ones that we have in Scripture, I believe Galatians is first. And, and, and what that tells me is, is that it's very easy to slip into error on this particular issue. It's something that happens quickly. This isn't something that took time to develop over years and decades and so forth. This is something that happened within just a, apparently a few months. And Paul seems to intimate as much in his expressions here in verses 6 through 10. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For I am now trying to persuade people, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If it if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. Paul here starts with the consequences of a false gospel. Expressing, identifying, communicating those things that happen when a false gospel is preached, when a false gospel is proclaimed. And he identifies two victims, really, of a false gospel. The first victim is the church itself. And he says that the church as a whole, the, the body of believers as a whole, suffers from agitation, from confusion, from fear when a false gospel is proclaimed. My translation says, uh, who, those who are troubling you. The NIV says, those who are throwing you into confusion. The idea here, the expression here, is, is this, this reality that when you attack something or when you try and redefine something that's so fundamental to who we are, it leads to a congregation that really doesn't know which way to go, really doesn't know what to do. Everybody walks around saying, well, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if I'm a believer or not. Am I really a Christian? That guy over there just said that, you know, I need to do this and this and that, and I haven't done this, this, and that. And so I'm wondering, do I need to be saved? It's really important. We're talking about eternity here. And if I get this wrong, it's not just a oops and I can fix it a little later. If I get this wrong, this is ultimate here. This is final. This is my future. And so when you hear and you have people within congregations and so forth talking about salvation and, and what's necessary for it and, and putting out these, these lists or these litmus tests, you have to believe this, 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 and this, this in order to be a believer. That can, that can sow confusion. That can sow 
animosity that can sow anger and fear and doubt. And it, it takes us away from our mission instead of being out there and impacting our community, instead of being out there and sharing the truth of who Christ is and what Christ can do for our life. We're inside shaking in our boots of, did we get it right or not? There's a clarity to the gospel and scripture, but somehow, because we're so good at this, we have messed it up. We have mixed in our own desires, our own logic in some cases. And so there's a cost to the church, but Paul also says what? There's a cost for the person who is changing the gospel. My translation here says a curse be on him. Let him be accursed. Anathema is another translation that you'll sometimes run out there. But the, the basic gist of this is judgment, separation, wrath. You're wondering what he means by a curse. He's not just saying a pox be on you or, or whatever, you know. May your life be bad, okay? He's saying that you stand, that person stands under the judgment of God, the separation from God, and the wrath of God. He's basically saying, may they be handed over to God for his judgment. Now, you note there in verse 8, it says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you different, the, the, the construction there, it's interesting, the, the, the difference between 8 and verse 9. So the if in verse 8, it's constructed in such a way to say that this is something that is highly unlikely to happen. Okay. In other words, an angel or us is not going to proclaim a different gospel. That's Let's throw it out there as a hypothetical, but it's very unlikely for it to happen. But in verse 9, the if clause there in how it's constructed, it is something that is definitely going to happen. Okay. Something that is happening with a, with a resulting consequence. So there are people who are preaching a false gospel here. And Paul is using the two extremes here. Not likely to happen versus very likely to happen to illustrate how big of a punishment, how sure the punishment is, how confident the punishment is. Paul is essentially saying this it is impossible to be a Christian and proclaim a theology of salvation that is contrary to the biblical position of how one is saved. Here, let me say that again. It is impossible to be a Christian and to proclaim, to believe, to hold on to a, a theology of salvation that is contrary to the Bible. You can't just say, well, they got a little bit off here. In Paul's estimation, in Paul's position here, in the confidence with which he speaks, He says that if you misunderstand this, you have missed everything. It is important. It is vital. It is significant. 
So what are some of these false gospels? What is the false gospel that he's talking about here? Well, there's basically just two types of false gospels Paul is hinting at here, communicating here. The first are those who take something away from the elements of salvation. Those who would suggest that all you really have to do is kind of mentally assent to it and you're saved. We have some churches in this community who preach this. Who simply say, believe Jesus, you're in. You're good. Good to go. And they actually specifically, overtly, completely distinguish between that and Jesus as Lord and Jesus transforming your life. I've held their tracks in my hand and read them with disbelief. That's a large church here. Maybe one of the largest in our community. Track written by the pastor who specifically says to get into heaven, all you got to do is just mentally assent to, to Christ. If you want a full or more complete life, then you make Jesus your Lord and you follow him and you obey him and there's a change. Whatever else we want to say about salvation, whatever else we want to say about what's going on is we need to understand that salvation involves a change in who you are. Not a change that we institute, not a change that we do, not a, a work that we build up and we institute, but a change that God himself performs in the life of the individual. Second group, probably the more common group, are those who would add something to the gospel. They, they want to put some other reality for Paul's group and for a lot today is that would involve obedience to the law. And you can just hear the Judaizers or the people of this party saying what? Well, Jesus kept the law. And if Jesus kept the law and we're modeling ourselves after Jesus, then we have to keep the law. But they misunderstand what Jesus was doing in keeping the law. He was presenting himself. He was expressing himself. He was communicating himself as the perfect sacrifice, the pure one. He was not, in that sense, establishing a model for us. You see him outright questioning some of the law, as it were. Some of the ones about the ritual clean thing, Jesus said. The Sabbath, Jesus questioned. They misunderstand him if they say that. Some groups today talk about the sacraments. Today we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. In Baptist circles, we don't call them a sacrament. We call it an ordinance. Why? 
because a sacrament is something that is considered an avenue of a work that is God's avenue for his grace, his salvation, his goodness. In other words, it's an activity you participate in that channels God's grace and forgiveness to you. That's a sacrament. An ordinance is something that you observe as a recognition for what God is doing in your life. The, the distinction is significant. Sometimes we, as Baptists, especially are guilty of the repeat after after me type mentality of salvation. If you just say the magic words, then you're saved. Somewhere we have exchanged explaining to someone the process of salvation for manipulation. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many of us have experienced that? Where is that even remotely biblical? Jesus said what? Proclaim me before others and I'll proclaim you before my Father. And yet we've somehow convinced people that it's okay to keep your faith, your decision, your conviction a secret. Why do we do that? We do that to manipulate. I've been on the podium more than a few times, and seen and heard preachers do that, and they say, then they say what? Raise your hand if you're making this decision. And I've been in rooms where no hand was raised, but the pastor said what? I see that hand. That's adding something to the reality of salvation. And whenever we add something to the reality of salvation, we are very much in danger of making salvation about us instead of about him. And this results in, and it affects every part of our life and ministry as a church. Because the church becomes market-driven. Visitors become prospective customers. Worship is done to satisfy present or potential customers. It's not about God. It's not about pleasing Him. It's not about honoring Him. It's not about praising Him. It's what we like. It's what we want. And if we're not doing what we want or what we like, then it's just not good. That whole thought process grows out of a manipulation, a mindset that says that what I do is ultimately what's important here. We need to be centered on God, on his heart for us, on his mind for us, on his program and his design for who his church is to be. And that starts first and foremost by understanding that the salvation we have is because of his wonderful, powerful, gracious, life-changing intervention in our lives, and not because of anything we did. It's his work, not ours. Paul makes this clear in chapter 2. Verses 15 through 21, he outlines what 
the true gospel is. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then prompter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things which that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul simply says that the true gospel is embedded in justification by faith. That's the true gospel. That's the starting point. Now, he's not going to spend a lot of time on the other aspects of salvation, which are intertwined, they're, they're interlocked, they're connected to justification. That would be what we call sanctification, which is growth, and glorification, which is the ultimate transformation. He's not going to spend much time there because people are getting the first steps wrong. And if you get your first steps wrong, then the second and third steps really don't matter at all. But understand this, the second and third steps are inseparable from the first steps. They're intertwined. You can't have one without the other. So if we get this right, those are going to follow. So Paul's thesis statement is simply that man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is his argument. That is his position. There is no salvation in any of my acts. Literally, no flesh shall be justified in verse 16. We just can't do the right things in and of ourselves. So that begs the question, what is justification? If we are, if we are saved by justification, by faith, what is justification? Well, Part of the answer resides in what it's not. Number one, justification is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the outcome of justification. It's the result of justification. Number two, justification is not atonement. Atonement is the basis or the cause of justification. They're not the same. Atonement is what Christ did on the cross. It is his behavior between uh, there on the cross to bring God and man into connection. Forgiveness is the ultimate result of that. But in between those two is what's called justification. And justification is simply this. It is the declaration by God, that one who formerly stood condemned has been granted new status. It is God's declaration of your status. 
why does he declare that? He declares that because of what Christ did on the cross. What is the result of that? That's the forgiveness of our sins. But it is his decision. This is why you cannot lose salvation, because salvation is the verdict of God issued on man on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. And you can't change God's verdict. Salvation is a status given by God, not one we put ourselves into. That's very important. The second part of the statement is what? It's faith in Christ. But notice it says by or through faith, not because of faith. That's important. Grace God's active decision leads to faith, which leads to renewal, and all of it is God's work. Your question might be at this point, well, don't we have to accept him? Yes. In any relationship, there is a meeting of the mind, so to speak. But suggesting that such acceptance has purchased our salvation in some way is tantamount to suggesting that an infant that eats what is given to him by his mother earned him the right to live. If the infant doesn't take it, surely they will die. But what? The mother provides everything in the process to get them there. Even the instinct to feed is passed on to him from her. Why do infants eat? Not like they're, oh, right, I, well, do I do or not? And yet it is still a response. Why are we saved? Because God has drawn us, and we respond to that. He's provided everything that's necessary to do that. And Paul addresses several objections here in this passage. In verse 17, he addresses the objection that ignoring the Old Testament law is tantamount to saying that Jesus leads one to sin. The New Living Translation puts it this way. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Too often we look for works instead of fruit. And there is a difference. Fruit is the outgrowth of what God is already doing within. A tree doesn't work to create fruit. It happens because that's who they are. And yes, I understand that this sounds like semantics, like splitting hair, but these are very important hairs to split, so to speak. We do what we do. We are who we are because Christ has changed us. Not because we're trying harder. Not because we want to please God. 
but because we love him, because that's who he's now made us. He has transformed us. So just to summarize the doctrine of salvation, we are declared right with God because Jesus died on our behalf, because God reached out in grace, and because we have responded using the faith he gave us. That's how you're saved. Jesus died. God reached out in grace. And we responded using the faith he gave us. That is, in a nutshell, how one is saved. As a result of that, we have been declared right with God, which is expressed in forgiveness. The sins we committed and will commit are not held against us. That doesn't mean there's not consequences. The relationship is still damaged, the side of glorification. There's still chastisement that is felt. There's still the normal effects of the cause. But we are new people. We have a new freedom. We have a new power. We have a new manner of walking. We bear fruit. God draws. We respond. God changes us. We live a new life. It is all God. Notice how Paul ends in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if there is any other way to be saved, Christ was a fool to die. If you could work it up, if you could work around, if you could cause it to happen, then Christ didn't need to die. But the reality is the relationship is so broken, so separated, so damaged. But the only way it was ever going to be repaired is if God himself repaired it. And God himself prepared it, made a way. I want to leave you with this quote from Richard Hurd. It says, in this awfully stupendous manner at which reason stands aghast and faith herself is half confounded, was the grace of God to man at length manifested. Salvation leaves our reason shocked. Salvation leaves even our faith a little bit confounded. How? Why? Would God do such a thing? Because of his grace. You cannot fully understand the riches of God's grace until you understand the depth of our sin. He has reached out to us. He has called us. And if you're here today and you have built your salvation on anything other than his grace, his goodness, and his invitation to be transformed, then you have built your salvation on rocky ground.
on something that will not stand, on something that is not authentic. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he shares it with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, come to this time of reflection, come to this time of evaluation, God, I pray that you'd lay on the hearts of anyone here who's submitted to or walked in or committed to a, a different salvation than the one you offer. God, I pray that you convict them and draw them. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters here who have had doubts or fears or confusion about their salvation. Lord, help them to find their comfort and their rest in you here this morning. Help them to see and to understand that salvation belongs to you. Help them to understand that they can have confidence because it's not built upon who they are. It's built upon who you are and what you've done. And if they've experienced that life-changing relationship, then they walk in assurance and not fear. God, I pray that you help us to evaluate our walk, our, our sanctification, as it were. As we get ready to take part in this ordinance in this special time of remembering what you accomplished through your son, help us to to do so with an assurance. With the faith in what you've done, Lord. Use this time for your purposes. In Christ's name I pray.